Good morning, church. Can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. We want to welcome you uh, to Stone Point here on the Wills Point campus, as well as those that are joining us in Edgewood and online. Uh, We are grateful that you're here this weekend, and uh, we are even more thankful for that weird object in the sky uh, that's uh, round and yellow and that brings heat, right? And so uh, we uh, are glad to have it. What a great day to gather together as God's church and his people. And uh, today we're going to continue a message series called Upside Down. Uh, this message series is based off of the words of Jesus as he begins this famous sermon called the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Uh, we're going to settle in on verse 7 here in just a few moments. Maybe you're new to church. And you're like, man, I, I don't even know uh, where a Bible is. I don't have one. Well, we would love to bless you with one on both campuses. And so make uh, sure that you know that's available at the end of our service. You can find it at the connection point. Uh, and so as you're heading, uh, there's a connection point on both campuses. So uh, we would love to bless you with the Bible. Uh, maybe you're here and you're like, I've got a Bible. I just don't know how to use it. Uh, so real quickly, uh, your Bible is made up of two different sections. You have what's called the Old Testament, which is 39 books. Uh, this is the first 39. Those, those tell you about this nation called Israel. Then the The next section of the Bible is called the New Testament. It's 29 books, and it tells you about the man who comes from the nation of Israel that's named Jesus. Uh, He's called the Messiah. He's the one who comes to save people uh, from their sin problem. And so uh, that's what we're going to be settling in. The first four books of the New Testament are what you call the Gospels or the good news. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you have your Bible, we're going to take the very first Gospel, which is Matthew and chapter 5. And so if you have it, you can turn there. Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount. He's got people who followed him up on this mountainside, and he is going to begin it uh, with some uh, some words uh, that are going to challenge the audience. Uh, throughout the entire message, as he's preaching this sermon, uh, he is saying things that are resonating in the minds of his audience. The only thing is, is that he is, in a sense, adding to or challenging their assumptions. And so he might say something like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He may say, hey, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And every Jewish man in the audience would say, of course you shouldn't commit adultery. That's a sin. We should never step out of our marriage. We should never, uh, you know, fornicate with other people that are not our spouse. But then Jesus would say, but have you ever looked lustfully on another woman? Well, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he adds to the Mosaic law in a sense of saying, this is what it looks like. And he does that time and time and time again. And he talks about things like uh, adultery and uh, being a thief and even things like forgiveness. And, and so he's doing all these different things and he is literally taking every word that he says and he's challenging the audience that's with him from his 12 disciples to possible uh, a group of people that have followed him. And as they hear these words, they go, wow, this is different than I've ever heard. I've never thought about it like this. And in some ways it flips it upside down. And so if you get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says these words, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
The idea here is he uses again the Greek word makarios, which is blessed. And he basically just says, hey, happy are those that are merciful for they're going to receive mercy. The idea here uh, that he's talking about is ultimately about giving mercy and receiving mercy. But here's what I want you to understand. Um, This message is not necessarily um, building on itself, meaning that you could be here today and we can catch you up. But what Jesus is saying these words, he definitely is building these statements, these blessed statements on top of each other. And the very first one that he, uh, he talked about, we saw a few weeks ago, he says, blessed uh, are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The idea there, he goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word poor in spirit literally means beggarly. It's the word tokos. It's the beggar who comes and, and literally literally gets on his knees and says, hey, I have nothing to offer you. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I need your help. That's what a beggar does. And so oftentimes we see beggars in our context, you know, you're pumping gas and as you're pumping gas, you catch them out of the corner of your eye. And what you do typically when you see them, there's a very, hand, a very, very, very small handful of us that we actually engage them with our eyes and say, hey, here's $5. That's not what most of us do. What most of us do is what I do. And that is when you catch them out of the corner of your eye, you kind of casually turn your shoulder away from them. Uh, you formulate the things in your mind that you're gonna say, because they ask you, hey, sir, can I have $3? And you're like, man, I'm so sorry. I don't carry cash. I just carry a credit card, whatever. But the beggarly is that person that says, I need help. Will you help me? And so Jesus begins this. He goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the beggarly for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning when you realize that you're a sinful person, that in our humanity, we, we fall short of the glory of God, then God can meet us there. What Jesus is trying to begin the Sermon on the Mount with, he says, listen, God cannot make room in a person's life when they don't need God. If you're prideful, you're arrogant, or you want to be God on your own, then God has no place in your life. And so he says, only can God help the person who is beggarly, destitute, spiritually bankrupt. And when they're sad over that spiritual problem, then God can begin to bring them comfort. That's what he says next. He goes, blessed are not just the poor in spirit, they'll find the kingdom of God, but blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The idea is you want God in your life, then you need to realize that you have a gaping hole in your life that needs to be filled. Now, the question is, what do we fill it with? Well, last week we talked about this, that as we move forward from this idea of, uh, of searching after God, mourning over our sin problem, then there's this idea of meekness. And then ultimately that meekness, which says, God, I want you to control my life. Then we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, I'll tell you though, oftentimes as in a beggarly state, we may know that we're in need and we may even know that we need help. But the question is, is who do we turn to? Jesus says, if you turn to me, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But if you turn to other solutions, the yoke is not so easy and the, and the burden is not so light. For instance, you think about the things that you've tried to find worth and value in your life, the things that you've turned to, a lot of those things have enslaved you. Addictions, um, pornography, um, greed, more work, whatever, relationships, oftentimes they become a cumbersome load. They don't free you of anything. Matter of fact, they bring a greater load to your life. And Jesus says, no, when you realize that you are empty, spiritually bankrupt, you turn to me in sadness, I am willing to bring control in your life, meekness. Meekness means uh, you're in a sense, a bridled horse. A horse has great power and stamina and vigor. Listen, a horse can be controlled though. A stallion can be controlled. And that's what Jesus says. Listen, 
when you, when you have meekness, you're, you're coming under my control. And when you come under my control, you now hunger and thirst. And he says, after righteousness. Think about what we hunger and thirst after. And so Jesus is, is just kind of setting the stage. He goes, hey, when you know you're a sinner, when you fall short of, the, short of the glory of God, when you know that there's nothing good about you, you're spiritually bankrupt, when you're sad over that, ready to be controlled, then guess what? I'm ready to show up and I will fill your life with everything you need. That's what Jesus is trying to say. And you go, okay, okay, if I'm ready to be filled with everything I need, then what's next? And Jesus says, now let me tell you what's next. And Jesus does something very interesting here. Jesus says, after you've met him, your hunger and your thirst, after righteousness has been filled, he goes, now let me show you how you'll know that you have found the right sustenance. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall find mercy. So what he's talking about is this. He, he's showing you, in a sense, this, this parallel between trusting God and then becoming like God. You know, Jesus, Jesus is, is kind of setting the stage. He goes, hey, when you trust God, people are going to be able to see it. It's interesting, but that kind of follows something that we know of Mosaic law. In Exodus chapter 20, God sets the stage to the people of Israel, this nation I was telling you about in the Old Testament. He goes, hey, I want you to follow me. Here's 10 laws, follow these 10 laws, and you're going to be okay. And what's interesting, in the 10 laws, you could break them up to two things. Matter of fact, there was a group of men who asked Jesus, hey, what is the greatest law out of the 10, uh, all laws? He goes, surely, and they're trying to trick Jesus. Jesus goes, it's pretty simple. You should know that the greatest law is the love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all your strength. And he goes, and the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of Mosaic law could be broken up into two sections. Obviously, you've got things like uh, there should be no other gods before him. Uh, you should keep the Sabbath, make sure it's holy, etc. Then it moves on to how you deal with other people, honoring your father and mother, not stealing, not adultery, not coveting your neighbor's stuff, etc. And he breaks it out. But they basically flow into two two sections. One is how you manage and treat God and that relationship and how that overflows in other people. Do you see what Jesus just did here? He goes, when you recognize who you are before God and these blessed statements, he goes, then you can begin to see how you deal with other people. And the first thing he says is after you've hungered and thirsted after his righteousness, the first attribute that he says is those who have met God and found him in their depravity as a beggar, are what? Merciful to beggars. That's what he just did there. You see what he did? Like that's upside down thinking. He goes, listen, when you received mercy from God, you were a beggar. You needed a place to find shelter and comfort and hope. God found you there and he lifted you up. And he goes, now it's a blessing if you, because you received mercy, what would be merciful? ironically, is that we talk about this in the church, and I think some of us in here have a difficult time understanding what it looks like to be merciful. And I'll tell you that this is probably the greatest aspect of fruitfulness in a person's life that would mark them as a believer. You might even remember Jesus saying the words, hey, you want to know that you're my disciple? People will be able to know you're my disciple with what? How you love one another. The idea is how merciful you are. If you receive mercy, you should give mercy. That's the idea. And he's talking about this concept of mercy and forgiveness and offering people something that they need. 
you may go, well, okay, cool. Now help, help me resonate with the story. There's an awesome story in the same book called Matthew. And so in Matthew, if you flip over to your right, you're going to land in Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, there's a handful of things that are happening in this chapter. I think it's fantastic because uh, the, 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 the chapter starts out and you've got the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Okay, I laugh at that. I think that's incredibly funny, okay? And the reason why is because you're gonna see how the chapter moves and it, the chapter's gonna move from who's gonna be the greatest of the kingdom to forgiveness issues. And Jesus is gonna kind of flip the script on them and he's telling the story about how they should forgive one another. And in Matthew chapter 18, you've got this classic passage about how we should forgive one another. And oftentimes pastors, leaders in the church, journey group leaders, all these different people will point you to it. And it's to go reconcile your differences with your brother. And what you should do is you should in a sense, leave your place of worship. You should go and you should um, show them their faults. You should seek forgiveness. If they won't listen, then you go back, you get another person, you go back and you try to lay it all out before them again. And if they're unrepentant, they will not make amends. Then you're to shake the dust off your feet in a sense and leave them as unrepentant sinners. But he goes, you're try to go to them first in private. After that, encourage a handful of other people to go with you, try to work out the situation. If they're un, unrepentant, refuse to do that, then you're done. And so it brings up a point though for Peter. Peter, one of the 12 disciples, the followers, he's heard Jesus talk about the Sermon on the Mount. He's heard him say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's been thinking through this. At the same time, Peter is a Jew. So Jews have heard different things all their lives. And he asks this question, Jesus, how many times must I forgive? So they've talked about who's the greatest in the kingdom in Matthew chapter 18. They've talked about how you reconcile your sins to one another. And it begs the question, he goes, well, how often should I forgive my brother and my sin against me? And, and how many times should I forgive him? And then he says, as many as seven times. So he goes to Jesus after they've talked about forgiveness. He goes, well, how often do I do this? Like how many times do I give forgiveness? Is seven times enough. Now a great Jew, one that kept the law intently, would say that forgiveness is about three times. So that means that, hey, burn me once, shame on me, burn me twice, shame on you, right? Burn me three times, boom, there's the boot, right? You got that? Like, how many of you are like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good plan to me, three's too many, yeah. That's where we live. But Peter, okay, Peter, He's always trying to up the ante. Think of that, okay? Matthew 18, hey, Jesus, who's gonna be the greatest, the kingdom of God? I don't know about you, but teacher's pet, hey, Jesus, is seven times, is that the right answer? And you go, well, how in the world do you get to seven? I'm like, I don't know, seven days in creation. I, this is what I think. I think it's three. So three plus three is what? Six. And add a cherry on top, that's seven. That must be the right answer. You know what I'm talking about? So it's like, this sounds reasonable to me. Seven, Jesus, that work. I mean, that's kind of the biblical number, isn't it? I mean, all things happen. Seven's the magic number, right? And I love Jesus' response. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Most people would, would say, and maybe even your version of your Bible would say 70 times seven. The idea really is a multiple uh, amount, meaning 70 times seven, which you would do the math, and you'd come up with 490 times. And so you go, wow, that's, that's a lot further. That's upside down thinking. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this whole thing. Most Jews are like, oh, three times is enough. Peter's like, maybe we'll do seven, three plus three plus cherry on top. That's seven. That's good enough. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. 70 times seven is more suitable. And if you can imagine that, like Peter, the disciple, he's heard all these different things. He's like, what? 
490 times? That doesn't even sound reasonable. Okay, so what happens if it's 491? Then we can just cut them off? I mean, did that work? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a logical conclusion. And here's what Jesus is trying to do. He's basically saying, listen, there is not enough times for somebody to do something against you that you shouldn't be able to forgive. Like he's just trying to set the stage that forgiveness is not bound by a number. Forgiveness is just something that should come out of the merciful. And then he continues with this story. I happen to think this is probably one of the coolest stories in all of our Bible. Um, But he says, let me just tell you a story. So Jesus gives this unlimited amount. And then in verse 23, he says, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, when he began to settle one, uh, was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, okay? So there's a guy who's brought before him and he owed 10,000 talents. And this would have been some astronomical number that we wouldn't be able to come up with, let alone this servant in Jew- Jewish day. So just kind of help you understand, a talent was a, was a measurement of money and what it was, it was a pound. So it would have been about um, 75 pounds in our day and time. And it could have been like sticks of gold, you know, silver, whatever. But most people would say that it would range and how, how much, and it could be anywhere from $12 million to $1 billion. The bottom line is Jesus is trying to make a couple of points here. He's trying to make points and saying, look, number one, forgiveness is not necessarily a number. And number two, um, you need to know what the kingdom of heaven's like. The kingdom of heaven is like the master having a servant who has this astronomical amount of money that he could not ever repay. Matter of fact, just so you kind of get your head around this, one of the common percentages of money made in that day would have been a denarii, okay? Um, and a denarii would have been a common day's wage, and it would have taken literally 16 to 20 years of a denarii to pay off one talent. Do you understand? So the idea here is this is an astronomical amount. This guy who does not, uh, who owes this king, he cannot pay it. And then you go, okay, he can't pay it. So obviously the king is going to be merciful to him. And then this is where it gets interesting. He says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, all that he had and payment to be made. Now, at first you look at this and you go, okay, that, that master seems unmerciful in a way. Because you think, well, okay, the, the master, I mean, he obviously loaned out this money at some point. It was 10,000 talents. Um, it, it's a, an incredible amount. This servant, I'm sure, made promises to repay it. He probably said, hey, I promise I'll take care of it. I'll do this. I'll do that, etc." We don't know the dialogue that took place, but here's what we do know. He did not come through in paying it. And finally, it gets to the point where the master says, you know what, it's time to settle accounts. He goes throughout the kingdom to his servants. He gathers all his servants. There's one who owes this incredibly large amount that he has not repaid and apparently probably has not made many efforts to repay, hadn't kept his word apparently. And so he goes, it's time for us to, to it's, it's, a way, it's a way with you that you go. Now, listen, he's going to sell them into slavery. Now, what we do know from this story and this parable is that this man was not just a servant of the king, but apparently he had servants under him. So let's just say that he had 20 in his household, but between him and his wife and his children, and potentially, let's just say his children had a few children, and let's just say he also had a few servants under him, which the story would allude to here in a few moments. Let's just say there's 20 or 25 of them. At max, each one of them, as they're put on the slave block, would bring one talent apiece. 
okay? And so they would, it would bring several years' wages. There was definitely some worth there in terms, but most of the time, a slave put on the block would bring one-tenth of a talent, so far less than that. But let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Apparently, they're leaders in the, in the palace. They got people under them. There's 25 of them. They're all going to be put on the slave block, and they're going to bring 25 talents, although there's how many talents owed? 10,000. 10,000 talents owed. They're going to get 25 And so you go, well, why in the world would this master do that? And here's why. The master knows that he has to be a man of word integrity. And ultimately, the master is still going to bring justice, even though it doesn't look merciful. Well, you go, well, where's the mercy in the first place? Apparently, the mercy in the first place is that he gave a loan for, for this man, right? Then it gets even more interesting. So here it is, he, he, he's about to put all of this man's belongings up on the slave block, and he's going to say, I'm going to get back part, I mean, an, an inkling of what's owed to me, and, and we're just going to be done. Justice is going to be served, and I'm going to write off the loss, and it's all going to be good. We're going to be fine. We're moving forward. And then all of a sudden, watch this man's response, the servant, the servant who owes this large sum, he falls to his knees, and he implores him, have patience with me, have patience. And if you could just see this, it almost goes back to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. What it's showing is blessed is the merciful. Blessed is the one who drops to his knees. Blessed is the one who begs and pleads. But catch this, you ready? Listen, I'm going to give you a game changer right here. You better pay attention. Lean in, even if you're in the far back. How do you know when a person is truly beggarly? When do you know when a person understands what it is they're asking for? When do you know when you should help a person and when you shouldn't help a person? You remember the gas station story? They're, here they come. They're going to want money. Okay, now listen, uh, about 20 years ago, Kelly and I were in Tyler, Texas, and we were pumping gas. It's like 10 o'clock. It's right there on the loop. And there's a guy who comes up and he's like, sir, would you please just give me 20 bucks, like $20. It'll, it'll help my family. I just need a little bit of gas. And then he says, listen, there is nothing I won't do. He's like, you can have my wedding ring. I don't mind. You just give me your address. I'll mail it to you. I'll mail you back the money. I'll do whatever. And here's what's interesting is you go, okay, that, that's fantastic. And oftentimes our heartstrings are pulled to the people who make the biggest what? Promises. But there's your classic warning sign. The people who in their beggarly state make promises are usually the ones that will never fulfill their end of the bargain. See, when Jesus encourages the beggarly to come, it's with no strings attached. See, the beggarly doesn't say, hey, listen, if you forgive me, I'll do this and I'll do that. But watch this man's response. He drops to his knees in a beggarly state. He begins to beg, plead. Oh, please don't send my family to the block. Oh, please, please don't do that. I, look what he says, will repay you Say it with me. I will repay you everything. And you go, 
I don't understand what you're trying to say. I don't, I don't get it. I don't guess I understand what you're trying to say. You're telling me that because this man said he would repay everything that you wouldn't help him? No, that's not what I said. What I said is, is this man just made one of the most foolish statements in all your Bible. The man owes 10,000 talents. He could live all of his life plus the years of Moses' life, and he won't make that much money. And he says, if you'll have patience on me, I will repay everything I owe. And in that condition, the answer is, no, you won't. No, you won't. Why would you even say such a foolish statement? No, you won't. You, you haven't yet. He obviously loaned this at some point. And, and here's what I want you to understand. That in our depravity, oftentimes what happens is we come and we'll lay out some sort of excuse. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? Like, I mean, just you, like, I mean, think about it. Have you ever, God, listen, if you'll get me out of this predicament, I promise. Two things. When you get there and you're making deals with God, you clearly do not understand who God is and really the depth of your depravity where you are spiritually. And here's why. God doesn't make deals. But God does unrelentlessly pursue beggars. But a real beggar drops to his knees, and then instead of saying, God, I'll repay you everything, here's what a real beggar says. God, I got nothing to pay you. God, I have nothing I got nothing to offer. I'm asking for a handout. I'm asking for forgiveness, but I got nothing. Listen, I'm not going to keep my word. I'm not going to do what I said I would do. Listen, I know who I am, and it is, I'm not, I'm not going to fool you. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. I'm broken. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm pitiful. Listen, I would love to repay you, but let's just be honest. I know that it's not in me. But I am convinced that if you'll forgive me, that I'll try to follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll be your servant. I'll become your doulos, your bondservant. And if you tell me to go, I'll go. If you tell me to do this, I'll do this. But listen, I, I just, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that I am prone to, lo- to, to, to lust and, and, and my eyes can deceive me and my hands and my feet will take me place I shouldn't go. And so listen, you're taking a risk on me. I want you to know that. But listen, I'm a, I'm a beggar. I'm pleading before you. Would you please just help me? That's what a real beggar does. You may look back at your conversion. You may be wondering, well, why is it that, man, my, my faith has never taken shape? Maybe your faith was built on your deal. Maybe it was what you would do for God and what you thought he, he owed you. No, he didn't owe you anything. God's blessed to help a beggar, but oftentimes we will not reduce ourselves to a beggarly state. And this man, he had a debt in which he could never pay, and he said the most foolish words, maybe in all your Bible, I will repay you. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because that might help you out when the person comes to you and they ask for help. I mean, listen, what are they asking for? Hey, I promise I'll repay you. Listen, typically people don't repay. Not in all cases, but in most cases, they overpromise and they underdeliver. That's just typically what happens. And so you look at this man and look at the master. It says a whole lot about the master. The master goes ahead and he forgives this debt. Look at it. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave him. 
That just is a classic sign of what the gospel is. The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the good news of Jesus coming to man, even though we overpromise and underliver. That's the gospel at its core. This statement is the gospel at its core. Gospel is, means that God is going to give you mercy, unwarranted. There's, there's no favor in you. There's nothing. He just gives it to you. We don't get what we deserve. That's what mercy is. It's the classic sign of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the uh, great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace that we've been saved. That's what mercy is. And, and the master's willing to give mercy, but who does mercy really come to? It comes to the repentant. And you're like, well, the, the master just gave him mercy. No, let's see if he really gave mercy. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Don't lose that last part of the statement. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So here it is. This guy has this incredible large debt. He made promises that he could not keep. Yes? Y'all, did y'all catch that? Everybody shake your head if you caught that. And Edgewood too, shake your head. Yeah. He made a promise he couldn't keep. So you go, okay, well, surely he's going to walk away and this story's going to get better. Well, look at it. So that same servant, verse 28, he goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages. This man owed a lifetime of wages he could never repay. He finds a guy who owed him a debt of a hundred days wages. And I guarantee you, he said, listen, the master has been merciful with me. And so I want to be merciful with you. Because listen, that's what all Christians do. Right? I think that's at least the Christians I surround myself with, right? And he, and he began to choke him. What? Choke him. And literally the Greek word there is that he grabbed him by the throat of his neck. That's what it implies. He goes and he grabs him and he, because he owes him 100 days wages. He grabs him and he says, you need to repay. You need to pay what you owe. That's what he says. And then look at the man's response. So his fellow servant falls down, pleads with him. Classic beggar. Got it? Falls to his knees, begs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Got it? Trigger something in your mind. And then look what he says. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same words. Now, a second ago, you go, well, now, 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 listen, okay, now you're going to flip the script on me because a second ago, you were saying that should be a warning sign when somebody says those words. But in this case, you're, you're saying that he just said the same words. So is this guy a beggar and you shouldn't help him either? No, no, no. Here's the catch. Catch this. Lean in. This man is going to make a realistic promise. This man says, listen, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Why? Because he goes, I can realistically work overtime and I can get this thing paid back. I think it's the great exchange between what we have with God, the master and the king, and how we should treat others. It's the merciful that receive mercy. This guy, possibly forgiven of such a great debt, goes right out, chokes this buddy with a hundred denarii worth of debt, says, where is my money? Pay me. Catch this. Why does he need to be paid? So he can go and pay his debt to the king? Didn't that what he said? Hey, if you'll give me time, I'll pay you everything. What's the hundred denarii going to do to his debt? Nothing. And then look what happens. And he, 
He refused his servant. He went and he puts him in prison until the debt is paid. So he says, hey, you need to pay the debt. Puts him in prison. And when his fellow servants saw that it had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. I bet they did. Why? Because they were confused. I mean, think about it. Think about how confusing that must be. You just heard of a debt relinquished of 10,000 talents, more debt than any man could ever pay in his lifetime. He's got 100 denarii worth of debt, uh, literally a third of a year's worth of work that could be paid back realistically, and he chokes the guy out on it. That's craziness, isn't it? Like, even as we read the story, we're like, what an idiot, what a bonehead. Then the master summons him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servants. I've had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. The question is, how long was he in jail until he should pay all his debt? How long would it take to pay all his debt? means he never got out of debt uh, and he never got out of jail. There was no freedom anymore. And see, here's the deal. We read this story. I mean, this is where I find myself in the story. And I'm like, dude. This guy is a bonehead. I mean, how stupid must you be to plead to have a debt forgiven which you could never repay? And he's not just foolish because he said words over promise, under delivered. That's not just why he's foolish. He's foolish in that way, but here's why he's also foolish. He's also foolish because he was a picturesque description of someone who could not what? Give mercy because he didn't understand the mercy in which he received. And you look at this and you go, that guy is nuts. And then here's where it catches. Here's the catch. That guy is you. And that guy is me. We are that guy. Think about the debt in which we have been forgiven and what we should forgive. right? Matter of fact, you've heard this, like, okay, you're making a compelling case, but here's the deal. How how do we know? And and, and surely there, I mean, there's some, obviously there's some things we need to wade through and work through, et cetera. And absolutely there is, because here's the deal. You shouldn't judge another person, right? Wrong. You heard that? Every now and then you're scrolling through Facebook and you see this post and it's kind of getting a little heated and then somebody in the bottom, no, no doubt, Maybe in some of this room, I don't know that for sure, but possibly some of this room, uh, you wrote, like, I don't even know where you're like, you are coming off like all judgmental because you have no place to judge. Um, like, and it's almost like this thing that we've kind of been taught, like intrinsically, we believe in the wiring and the fabric of our life, like we shouldn't judge other people. And, and then some ways you go, well, I think it's biblical. We shouldn't judge. Like, well, who are we to judge? Okay, real quick, let me just put this on maybe a plane, uh, plate that you can understand. Okay, there's an ice cream cut truck coming down my road, and it's in a really creepy old white van, and the, the little song is a little creepy too, and you know what I'm talking about? And my kids run out, and the guy's like, oh, I don't really have ice cream, but hop in the van. <laughs> Hold up. We're going to make a judgment. And let's just be honest, we already made a judgment on the van. We already made a judgment on the song. And we're making a judgment because you, you, you're selling, selling ice cream, but you don't have any ice cream, and you want my kids to get in the van. That's a judgment. And what are you going to do as a parent? You're going to go, heck no, you ain't getting in the van. What are you saying? Who are you to judge? So you make judgments every day. You make judgments about what you should eat, and what you should wear, and about whether you're going to stop at the red light or whether you're going to beat the train when it's coming across. 
Jesus never says don't make judgments, ever. It's not in your Bible. It's the most unbiblical statement that you could possibly make. But what Jesus does say, and he says it in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to show it to you what he says. Jesus says these words. Judge not that you be not judged. Now you could take that and you go, well, that's what he just said. Judge not so that you're not judged. No, no. What he means by that is this, judge lest you be judged. Meaning judge all you want, but just realize that if when you judge, you're gonna be judged. That's it. So just put yourself out there to be judged. And then he clears it up. He goes, for with judgment, you pronounce that you will be judged and the measure you use, it will also be measured to you. So why do you, See the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but you don't notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log of your own eye and then you will be clearly able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't say, don't go take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't make a judgment to say that your brother doesn't have a speck in his eye. What Jesus does say is when you notice that your brother has a speck in the eye, make sure that you identify whatever's in your eye because the speck in your eye may be larger than the speck in their eye. So just make sure that when you make a judgment that you're ready to be judged yourself. The idea is, is don't forget mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What Jesus is trying to do here is this. He goes, don't forget that you were once a beggar. Don't forget that you were once the one that was pitiful and helpless and that you needed forgiveness and hope and restoration. Now, if God has given you forgiveness, hope, and restoration, that means that you should implore forgiveness, hope, and restoration. The very things that you receive from God, not are just grace to us, but it's grace through us. And we're moving that out to other people. And you go, okay, so you're telling me I should forgive. Yes, here's the classic statement. Forgiven people forgive. Everybody say that with me. Forgiven people forgive forgive. Okay. One more time. Forgiven people forgive. And you go, that makes really a lot of sense. But here's the deal. You go, but Brandy, you don't understand my situation. And you're right. I don't. I don't. I, I cannot empathize with you and your situation. I can't understand everything that's going on with you. I don't know all the details of what's happening in your situation with your timeline, with your results. But I can tell you that the principle is not from me, it's from God, the one who can empathize and can understand and can give wisdom in your situation. And he's clearly saying throughout all of scripture that forgiven people forgive, that those who received mercy as a beggar, what? Treat beggars with mercy. But here's what I want you to notice, something, catch this. You ready? Okay, I've been hopefully putting on this. How do you identify when somebody's really merciful? And when they're really needing to receive mercy? Do you understand? Because here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is making a decision in your heart and in your life to forgive a debt and to move past it consciously in your mind and your heart and in your soul. But forgiveness is not what you think it is. Because you think, oh, judge, you know, lest you be judged, or hey, you shouldn't judge. Okay, what, right? Well, here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to move forward. But here's what forgiveness is not. 
Forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't always mean that the relationship isn't affected because sometimes you can give forgiveness, but it means that, you know what? We probably don't need to continue on the same track. Why? Because I gave you mercy. You didn't keep your word. You you hurt me really bad. And honestly, we're not going to be best friends anymore. Our relationship changes as a result of what you did. And here's why. Because forgiveness is not always without consequences. So sometimes you can make a conscious decision to forgive, but you also know as a wise manager of your household, of your things, that you go, it's probably best that we don't do business deals with this guy anymore. Not because I can't move past it, not because I can't forgive him, but because I can't trust his patterns. And because I can't trust his patterns, I've got to move a different direction. And as I move a different direction, listen, I'm forgiving him, but there's consequences to the relationship. Think about it like this, okay? If somebody murdered somebody you love, you could come to a place, and I think it's best that you do for your own health and well-being that you would forgive. But because you forgive, it doesn't mean that the man on sentence should go free. Now, there's consequences to actions. Got that? And here's the key. Catch this as I wrap, wrap this up. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. And a lot of times you go, well, God forgives. I mean, he takes all of our sins and he throws them as far as the east is to the west. You heard that one? It's in our Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Psalms clearly talks about that. But here's what I want you to understand. What he's not saying is that God forget, forgot your sin. God doesn't forget anything. God's God. How does someone super sovereign, all-knowing forget something? Wouldn't that make him... Less God? Ever thought about that? You know, you know why I'm so jacked up? Because I forget everything. I got to write it all down or I'm going to forget. I mean, so you're like, man, you told me you're going to do that. If I didn't write it down, I'm going to forget. That's a part of my humanity, my flawed nature. God is not human. He's God. He's sovereign. He's holy. He, he doesn't forget anything. You go, what do you mean he doesn't forget anything? I thought he forgot my sins. No, he chose to remove your sins from his presence, and he chose to punish your sins by grace and mercy on his son. But I'll promise you, those that do not have the son standing in your place, God has not forgotten anything. Matter of fact, Revelation alludes to they're all written and recorded in, the name, in a book with your name on it that every single thing you've ever done wrong is going to be brought before you and accountable for you and a holy God. But because we know God and received mercy, guess what? None of that is going to come into play. Not because he forgot it, but because he chose to mark through it. That's forgiveness. Understand? And so I would just tell you this. Listen, if you think that forgiveness is I have to forget everything, well, no, it doesn't. Forgiveness is saying I'm going to move forward based off of what I do know and what I can't forgive. But because I can't forget it doesn't mean that we can't have something to move forward with. Yes, your relationship may be changed. And yes, it may be difficult to move forward in certain ways. There's consequences. But doesn't mean that it should bog you down from moving forward. Now listen, you ever looking for those stories where you have forgiveness and forgiveness means, man, even though it's right there in the forefront, you forgive and there's reconciliation and there's restoration and the consequences are overcome. And you're like, man, that's awesome, you know? I looked for one of those stories because I wanted to share that at the end. I thought that'd be a like cherry on top. You know what I'm talking about? You know, Peter, like seven. Yeah, I thought that was going to be it. That defining moment, it would just wrap it all up. And then I realized that even though I read a lot of them, very few of them came from within the church. Almost all of them were based off of 
different things, you know, in our culture or events that happen, you know, secular. And then just something intrigued me. If the church is to be the people of God who receive so much mercy from him, why is it that we struggle to be the merciful? And why is it that we struggle so much with just coming to the table and having these conversations? You know why the church is declining? You know why we're having so many challenges within the church globally? Because we don't understand what Jesus said. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I really believe there ought to be far more stories about mercy and forgiveness and grace in the church than outside of the church. But the struggle is, most of the time we'll leave the church because somebody hurt our feelings and got they, they did something that we didn't like, and instead of working it out and seeking for forgiveness and repentance and restoration, even though there's consequences, we just go, you know what, I'm out, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to that church anymore because they're hypocrites, right? But you just became one when you left. Isn't that ironic? And so I pray that God would stir our affections for mercy, that we'd remind ourselves of the heart of the beggar, and that we would move forward And I pray that we wouldn't choke our brother out when we easily forget about what God has done for us. Amen, amen, amen. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would help us to leave this place. And I pray that we would have some decisions to contemplate. I pray that many of us in here, our affections would be stirred before you. I pray that many of us would have conversations with one another based off of what we've heard. It's been challenging God, we're, we're, we're foolish oftentimes because we forget the heart of the beggar. The beggar has nothing to offer you. We have nothing to offer you. But yet you reach down to us. And so I pray, God, that when we need forgiveness and grace and we implore that, I pray we don't overpromise and underliver. I, don't, I pray we don't say empty words, but we understand that forgiveness is a conscious decision to move forward despite that our relationships may be affected. Most of all, I pray pray most of all that, God, we would just have the heart of Jesus, that we're willing to, to, to lay our lives down in pursuit of other people. And Lord, life is messy and we get hurt and oftentimes it's chaotic and confusing. And the more we get to know someone, the more we see all their flaws. But God, in spite of our flaws, will we just show grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would implore us on your behalf to be a witness and a testimony and a light in the darkness. May people not be confused by the church and about the way forgiveness should work within the context of the walls of the church. And so help us. We love you. We thank you. And we hear the words, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.